0: Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. This program is all about our state's largest industry, and that's agriculture. Last Friday, how nice was it to walk out the door and feel a little snap of cold air? Feels like harvest season. Even though it's been harvest season for a while, more than half of the state's corn already taken down. I've got the USDA State of Our State corn numbers coming up in a moment. By the way, this may be the last USDA numbers we get for a while if the U.S. government shutdown takes place. Now, I'm not a betting man, but I'll take a bet from anybody who thinks both sides will agree before the deadline. On today's program, we'll hear from Ray Starling. Ray's a wolf packer and a tar heel and a former ag insider inside the beltway, that is, and an author as well. Jeff and I have a number of questions ready and rolling on Ag Headlines. Speaking of Jeff, that's Jeff Turner, my co-host. We'll hit him up in just a few moments after I say a few good words about our sponsors. Ag and NC is sponsored by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, Syngenta Global, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Let's turn on the Ag and NC Duplin Studios. Jeff Turner, how goes it, my friend? I'm great, Dan. I hope you're doing well today. I am, You made me take more attention to the corn being harvested, and uh, I was sleeping during the first, I think, uh, probably 10%, but as of September 10th, the USDA crop progress report shows over half of the corn growing in all the states has been harvested. Texas leads the way, 62% of the crop harvested. North Carolina trails by about 13%, but as of a week ago, half of the corn in North Carolina has been harvested. That's up 19% from the previous week and ahead of the five-year average by 1% ahead of last year by about 5%. Crop conditions in our state rated 68% good to excellent, 25% of the state's corn rated fair, and the remaining 7% poor or very poor.
1: As I said earlier, I, I think uh, we've got a lot of a lot of acreage that's doing extremely well. The yields are outstanding. And by the same token, the, the flip of that coin is there are some acres out there that's, that didn't yield too well. Again, it, it's all about the weather and I'm so- timing.
0: I'm so used to seeing corn as silage, right? So everything is is usable there. What's it look like inside? What do the kernel developments look like on the cob? You seen any? Uh,
1: it it looks pretty good, except a, a short ear of corn that snubbed off because it it didn't get enough water to fill out. I mean, that's you, you see that in a lot of a lot of areas. By the same token, 300 bushel corn in a lot of places is is not an exception this year. It's uh, there's quite a bit of 200 to 300 bushel per acre corn, which Back in the day when I was in the, the farm supply business, if you averaged 75 bushels across, man, that was a big deal. Unthinkable. Yeah, 75 today is on the low end.
0: National Pork Producers Council President Scott Hayes announced late last week that his farm would not be adapting the California Prop 12 rule. So, Jeff, is there, uh, is there something you'd like to tell us?
1: <laughs> yeah, California no pork for you.
0: <laughs> You're not going to be flipping any farms anytime soon, <laughs> are you? No, I
1: think we're we're going to talk about that shortly, I think with uh with our guest, but uh, it's not flipping a switch. Prop 12 requirement is a tremendous investment. And unless someone's willing to pay a premium for it, I'm not so sure that anyone's willing to make that investment. You you got to pay a premium somehow. It has to be paid for that additional investment, and it's a huge investment. It's a tremendous investment. In fact, to to go in and convert today versus a farm that's been built 15 years or so, uh, it's probably about three times what the original cost of that farm was.
0: How would that look in the state of North Carolina, anyway? Given the fact that there is a, a moratorium on farm permits, farm permits. How would you go about building a new one? Yeah, uh, what do you have to pledge to take the old one down? You got to—it can't. It's got to be on the same site. How does that work?
1: It would have to be on the same footprint, which means then the size of that farm, the population of the animals on that farm would probably go down. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I've got a contract on my desk right now to rebuild a farm. It's exactly. Four times the cost of that farm when it was built in 1996, and and the price of pigs aren't much different than they were in right, 1996. So that that says it all. Yep. And uh, farm labor, the price of farm labor has continued to go up. I mean, look, look at the cost of labor. Look at the cost of utilities and and energy in general. You put all that together, it's a it's kind of a bleak picture. Hell, it is a bleak. It's a bleak
0: picture. <laughs> yeah, it's not kind of. <laughs> it ain't kind of. It is. When you're saying on the same footprint, you're saying the same square footage size. You're not saying in the same exact place. No, no. It's
1: got to be in the same place. It has to be, in most cases, it's going to have to be on the exact same footprint of the existing farm, which, by the way, means...
0: Close it down. Stop.
1: you got to close it down so there's no there's no revenue on that farm during this period of time. You have to pay to demolish it and haul it away, and then the wait time to build it back at four times what it cost to
0: begin with. Mm. There's no way to do this. Our guest today is uh, has got a unique resume. I'm looking forward to all sorts of questions flying. Ray Starling is uh, well. He he has got a legal degree. He was he's got an ag background, and he was uh, in Washington.
1: I've known Ray for many years, and you know he worked with um, the Department of Agriculture in North Carolina. Uh, he's worked over in the General Assembly. Ray has uh, he's served very well in a lot of places, and so uh, it will be interesting. He has a great background. He understands agriculture and farming. He are one. He grew up as one. He's been in the in the tobacco patch before, so he he knows all about it, and a bright guy.
0: Sure, sure. He's advised governors. He's been in the president's quarters. He's he's even advised the United States on trade, but can he put up with two crazy farm boys? You know, I suspect he can hang with us pretty good. (laughs) We'll do that right after a word about Syngenta. Nothing ruins a tasty vegetable like a hungry insect. And that's why you need Besiege Insecticide with fast knockdown and residual control. It protects your crop from worms and other pests learn about besiege insecticide talk with your syngenta field rep and as always read and follow label instructions hey this is dan miller you're listening to a podcast of an on-air program that we carry on ibx media's radio stations if you like the podcast take a moment and subscribe either apple or spotify however you're listening to the show now let's get to our interview this is Ag and NC on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. I'm Dan Miller, along with my co-host, Jeff Turner. Ray Starling is the youngest of three boys, raised in a century-old farm in southeast North Carolina, North Carolina state grad, UNC law grad, former chief of staff of the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture during the last administration, and general counsel of the NC Chamber and president of the NC Chamber Legal Institute, as well as author, which we'll talk about. Welcome to the program, Agriculture in North Carolina.
2: Great to be on, Dan and Jeff, and uh, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Ray, you've done so many things
1: and done so many things so well. Tell us what you do today with the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce.
2: I would put most of my working life into two buckets. The working life at the Chamber is really sort of dedicated to the overall goal of the statewide chamber, which is trying to protect and promote the business environment of the state. So a lot of times when people think about chambers, they think about local chambers of commerce, which have a generally a a different mission than our statewide chamber. You know, local chambers try to recruit businesses, do local economic development. They host, you know, networking opportunities and try to connect people locally. Our core business at the statewide, and all of that's good by the way, but our core business at the statewide chamber is to guard the policy environment of the state to try to make sure that North Carolina is the number one state in the country in which to do business. And even by the fine folks at MSNBC's ratings, we have apparently done that quite well. I have to pause there because I know there's a lot of influential people that listen to you all. We have not done that alone. We have had a lot of help from the leadership uh, in the legislature, uh, from other trade associations, even to some extent in the governor's office. But that's really what the chamber does. And sometimes we convene people. Sometimes we pull people together and talk about hard policy questions that have got to be solved for the state. But most of the core work of the chamber is around making sure that at the general assembly level uh, that we're plugging in the right direction in terms of making it a great place to, to, to work and to have a business. And then you also mentioned the book, I'm an executive advisor with a group out of Columbus, Ohio, called Aimpoint Research, uh, it's a group of retired military intelligence officers who try to use the skills that they learned as intelligence officers to forecast and predict you know, what is going to impact the future of the agri-food value chain. So more than just on farms, from farm to fork, as we say, and frankly on either side of that as well, What's the future hold for agriculture, agribusiness, retail, food service, all that kind of good stuff? I'm fortunate to associate with those guys. I, I do a little bit of speaking, but those are the big
0: buckets. Well, growing up on a farm and you said there was another bucket, I was a little concerned, but that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, I use the term bucket a lot. I try to bucket things. Maybe I do that too much. I never thought that was an agrarian thing until you said that. Maybe
0: that is. <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm. Bucket's one of our best yeah. tools.
1: So uh, obviously, uh, you talked about policy and that sort of thing and, and, uh, North Carolina policy. But if you go a little farther into that and think about things like waters of the U.S., I assume you've been following that fairly closely. Yes, sir. We get a new edition of the, uh, WOTUS rule every administration. So what, what do you think about this latest set of rules that have now been published?
2: I probably need to warn you, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on this latest draft. I'm skeptical, however, that it's as narrow as most in the ag community would want it to be. Uh, And at the end of the day, you know, this has really come down to a debate of how much jurisdiction has the federal government claimed on water that is not purely interstate and and how, how wide does that jurisdiction extend? And I think we say, we like to say, and I think this is accurate, even without federal regulation, our folks, generally speaking, are going to take care of their natural resources. And so anything that seeds any of that regulatory territory uh, back to the states or to locals, uh, we generally see that as a good thing. You know, I won't go into detail about the latest iteration. I will be surprised if it does not also engender a new round of litigation. But at the end of the day, what I think the Supreme Court has made very clear is that what EPA has been trying to do, uh, particularly during Democratic administrations, and that's not a partisan statement, that's just a factual observation, it has tried to expand the EPA's jurisdiction. And, and I feel like the U.S. Supreme Court has finally said, look, we really mean this. There are limits on how broad that jurisdiction can be, and and I think they finally got a majority opinion that defines those a little more closely. So what what I'm really looking for out of that is, does the business community, including the farming community, does it have the certainty that it needs to to be able to make investments, to be able to value land and understand, yes, I'm going to be able to use this, or yes, I can build here, or I can farm this, or I can disturb this soil without being looking over my shoulder – for the Army Corps of Engineers. That kind of stability may take us a few years to get, but I do believe we're headed in that direction.
0: Carolina Boy and and Secretary of EPA, Regan, has said that it's difficult for EPA to make rules because they often get litigated, as you point out. But from what I've read of this, it's deliberately so vague that it almost tees up uh, litigation.
2: That's a challenge, too, right? I mean, if you're trying to be so flexible... That you're leaving your, but you're leaving the inspector or you're leaving the engineer so much flexibility to decide is this in or is this out? There again, that's that, that that you'd be missing that predictability and certainty that the business community craves when it's trying to decide does it want to make an investment. And this goes to a bigger point, kind of related to some of the work we do with the Chamber Legal Institute. Every rulemaking that touches on a policy. That is near and dear to really any citizen, but I would sort of put in camps kind of the business community or the activist community or the environmentalist community. With all due respect, I don't mean the word activist in a purely negative way. It it ends up in court, right? I mean, so we would be fooling ourselves sitting here today if we thought that the Biden administration's final rule was, in fact, going to be the final word. I mean, that is clearly going to be litigated. Very smart people are going to play games in terms of where they bring that litigation, uh, how they move it forward, what kind of parties they have involved in the case. I take hope in the fact that we have a pretty clear rule from the United States Supreme Court that the federal government's jurisdiction over water is significantly more limited than what the consensus was that it was uh, you know, before this last uh, opinion.
0: Just getting rid of the phrase significant nexus is, is a step forward. But I tend
1: to kind of focus as I look at their ruling and, and and the way the rule is written. The exceptions to the rule seem to be somewhat where we were say in the 2014 time frame. Is that a fair statement?
2: Uh, just at first blush, I didn't get that. The devil's always in the details, right? And so, yep. uh so I don't know.
0: This is Talk six three and 103.7's Ag and NC. I'm Dan Miller, joined by Jeff Turner. Our guest is Ray Starling. Ray is the legal counsel for the North Carolina Chamber and past chief of staff for the Secretary of Agriculture. Ray, before we let you go, you've worked in the area of agricultural exports. How do you think the current administration's doing?
2: Well, I think the trade situation at the moment is fascinating, right? Like you, like you literally had a Trump policy that was that made it okay to push back against China and to use tariffs to try to change the trajectory of the trade deficit of the country. Admittedly, that created pinch points, I think. Interestingly now, though, the Biden administration, for different reasons, seems to be very laissez-faire about getting back on the trade train. And I think we need to be paying more attention to the fact that part of the philosophy of trade is good for all of us, I'm not sure that philosophy is is shared on either side of the aisle at the moment. And for an industry that depends on trade so much, that's a scary place for agriculture to be. So we got to be a little nervous about.
0: Jeff, I think this is the second or third guest over the last month that has said folks on both sides of the aisle are not happy with the Biden administration's trade policies.
1: Yeah, and I, I'll i just add one more voice to it. I'm, I'm not at all happy with anything he's doing. So
0: <laughs> to, trade policy is just a tick on a dog's tail. So, <laughs> As we are not far from uh, the end of the program, Ray, advocate for a moment on what you think's right for agriculture as we head down the road. I, I think at the end
2: of the day, the question that Jeff likes to ask that sort of haunts me is, you know, so what do we do? Um you know, Secretary Purdue used to use the phrase, you say, we got the talking part done. You know, what do we actually do now? The real reason that the Aggies have got to get our act together in terms of pushing back and leading on these questions, it was not that long ago, and, and you all have got parents that grew up in this era. Food insecurity, what, what's the phrase? We are three days away from anarchy, right? You let the food system go down for three to four days in a row. And really, our country literally goes into chaos. And my friend Brett Skoto at uh, Aimpoint, he likes to say, do you remember how people treated each other over toilet paper? Yeah. Can you imagine how they would treat each other over food insecurity? And so at the end of the day, we're the ones that know what we're doing. We're the ones that have the capital at risk, that are actually signing the checks and paying people to get this stuff done, to make sure food gets into the supply chain. We need to be making the calls about the future shape of the industry. You know, that's a moral obligation, frankly. It's not a pushback because you hurt my feelings. It's not a pushback because you're going to cost me money. It's a pushback that, look, I actually know what I'm doing here, and we need adults running the future of food policy for the country. I'm not trying to be exclusive. I'm not trying to say folks can't have an opinion. I'm not saying there's not things we can't improve in the ag sector. But at the end of the day, the farmers have got to be driving this conversation because they're actually the ones that are feeding us.
0: Thanks to Ray. Thanks to Jeff as well. Let me say that we talked to Ray when he had a free moment, so that segment of the program was recorded. We had a lot more subject matter than we had time to talk about it on the program. So there is a program coming up in our future with the balance of the conversation from Ray Starling. Agriculture in North Carolina is sponsored by Ag Carolina Farm Credit. Financing rural North Carolina for generations. Lending solutions for farms, land, and homes. Personalized for you. Ag Carolina Farm Credit. Giving you room to grow. Thanks in part to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture, it's got to be NC. Let's take a look at last week's commodity numbers over the prior week. Nearby live cattle and October feeder futures entered the week at fresh all-time highs. October live cattle surged $186.92.5 at the close. That marked a weekly advance of $3.70. October feeder futures were up $5.32.5 on the week to close at $264.47.5. October lean hog futures closed at 83.125. On the week, October Hogs gained a dollar It was a good week for Lean Hog Future Bulls as prices midweek hit a five week high and four week uptrend remains in place on the daily bar chart. North Carolina egg prices were lower on extra large and large, steady on the balance when compared to the prior week. The weighted average price quoted for Thursday, september fourteenth for small lot sales of delivered carton grade A eggs was one hundred seventy two forty three for extra large, one hundred fifty eight fifty six for large, one hundred thirty one oh nine for medium, ninety two dollars for small eggs. Number two yellow shell corn was steady to five cents lower when compared to the prior week. Prices ranged mostly 4.92 to 5.31 at the feed mills, 5.11 to 5.40 at the elevators through Thursday, September the 14th. Number one yellow soybeans were seven to 24 cents lower, ranged 14.24 to 14.59 at the processors, mostly 13.47 to 13.69 at the elevators. Number two red winter wheat range 481 to 571 at the elevators. Soybean meal FOB at processing plants range four seventy ninety to 481 per ton for 46.5 or 48 percent protein. Soybean prices quoted for harvest delivery 1295 to 1364. That's this week's agriculture in North Carolina. Listen to the program on Talk 96.3 or 103.7, Mondays 6.30 in the morning or 6 o'clock at night. Please also subscribe to our longer podcast version free on Apple or Spotify on your mobile device. Or download the IBX Media app. There you'll find all our broadcasts. Find details on this program on our website, Ag and NC. Thanks to our sponsors, Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Source Insurance Partners, Syngenta Global, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to BNC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2023, Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner, myself, Dan Miller, have a great week.